We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing our study of Hadith literature, its origin, development, and special features. We are now looking at uh, page 48, which is still continuing section uh, 4.2b about Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Right. So ibn, Ahmad ibn Hanbal had two sons named Salah and Abdullah. And he ended up, it said, boycotting them because they accepted stipends from the Khalifa. Mm-hmm. So one of, the, one of the ongoing questions in Islamic law is that can you be connected to power? So if, if the government or the king or in our case the president wants to hire you, <coughs> can you do it? What would be the concern? Why would it be such a concern? Um, because you could end up serving the person instead of, like, the, the deen. Yeah, exactly. That it's, it's very easy to fall into the trap of serving power rather than serving Allah, right? Especially if you're, if you're uh, you know, your, your bread and water, if, you're, if your food and your, your livelihood is based on it, right? And this is always an ongoing question. So one answer that is very common is no, you should not work for power, Okay. The other answer is, if you don't take that job, then someone else less qualified is going to take that job, right? So it's kind of like one is a little bit more on the idealistic side, the other one's more on the realistic side. And that's where you find a lot of our community debates playing out. There's one side that basically says, okay, no, do not involve yourself with the feds, do not involve yourself with the government, do not involve yourself with political power, because they're going to corrupt you because you're going to sell your soul, because you're going to sell out. And the other side isn't saying, you know, you're going to prevent yourself from selling your soul. The other side is saying, we're concerned about the same thing. But the reality is, someone is going to do that job. So it's better that someone who knows what they're doing do the job, right? Because even like, for example, um, if you look at a lot of the work in the American government on the Middle East, uh, you know, or just the Muslim populations of the world, Sometimes it's almost like shocking how ignorant they are, right? Um, because they don't know any better, right? Uh, and and so you come along with you know knowing knowing the terrain or knowing the skills, and you do a better job, right? So yeah, that's one of the big questions. So it's fascinating that Ahmed ibn Hanbal was the of the opinion: no, you do not connect yourself with power, but his sons did. What do you think of Machiavelli, and may, and do you think that maybe he just didn't want his sons connected to power because it was already so corrupt? Okay, there's a, the power corrupt part. I mean, it's not so much that uh, power is automatically corrupt, right? No, but in this time they were persecuting um, non-Marxists. Sure. I mean, uh, every society uh, at some point um, seems like they're persecuting somebody, right? That doesn't make it corrupt. That's basically saying... The nature of power is that if you're trying to do A, if you're trying to, let's say, uh, let's say you're trying to fix uh, all the plumbing in Flint, Michigan, okay? Mm -hmm. It means that you're moving money from one place towards that project, which means another necessary project is going to lose money, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because you don't have enough resources. Now, sometimes you will have people who just uh, don't behave responsibly and they just start wiping everything out, right? Sometimes you're going to have that and then the result is genocide. Right, you know, like if you look, <coughs> if you look at the the two presidential candidates, 
you have Hillary Clinton, and regardless of what you think of Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, you have Hillary Clinton, who in my lifetime is probably the most experienced politician running for president ever. Right? If you compare her to Barack Obama, Barack Obama was a state senator for a while. He was the United States senator for a very short time. Okay? That's all he had. Hillary Clinton, either directly on her own or especially with, with her husband, um, has been in politics for, what, like 40 years? You know, or not 40 years, I should say 20 years, more than 20 years. No, more, much more than 20 years because I'm just including D.C. She was also uh, in Arkansas when he was governor and such, right? That's one part. Now, is she a politician? Yeah, which means a politician is always negotiating, 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 right? Then you have Donald Trump, who says all these wild, outlandish things. He has no political experience whatsoever, right? And every word he says seems irresponsible. Um, so is Hillary Clinton uh, corrupt? What do you think? Because, by virtue of just being a politician or yeah. because of who she is? Uh, by, virtue of being, by virtue of being a politician. Why don't... What? I used to think that you didn't have to be corrupt if you were a politician, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure. I, okay, then define what does it mean to be corrupt. I guess twisting or um, combining different like intentions, I guess, so you're not really serving the people, but doing things to get or increase your own power and serving okay. yourself. Okay, so it's probably fair to say that's what a lot of politicians do. Okay. Um, but that's probably fair to say what most people do. Like, people will do certain things to make sure to keep their job, right? Um, because they want to keep their job. Now, it becomes corrupt if, for example, it involves lying. And do politicians lie? Yeah, many politicians lie. Uh, it's corrupt if you're, you're doing, uh, you know, some other shady deals that are, that are illegal, right? Now, do most politicians do that? Maybe not, right? Many do, and then some get caught, right? So my point is that it doesn't automatically make it, make it that she's corrupt, right? Uh, as a politician, you're negotiating every single step. Okay, I'll give you this if you give me this, and I'll give you this if you give me this. And, and that's how a big part of life actually works. I think another sign of corruption is when you take in a lot of money and benefits from your position, but then you don't um, help your constituents in the same, like, in a, a, in a way that actually reflects the amount of money and power you have. So, so one of the issues in governance, uh, are you as a political leader allowed to accept gifts? Okay. So, like, if I was going to a government employee, okay, like, like working at the White House, and I want to give them a gift, there's, like, the maximum value that it's allowed, which is, like, $25. I can't give them a gift more than worth $25. Otherwise, they're not allowed to accept it. Kind of like for the same point you're making. Okay? Um, one of the problems in all these states overseas that, that get financial aid, um, so the U.S. will give such and such country every year, let's say, $700 million, Right? But then what happens is that if there's a dictator, the dictator just keeps all the money. The money was for the whole nation, right? And so that part would definitely be corrupt, you know. Um, if I'm accepting money, you know, because somebody wants some project, then that's, that's might be pretty corrupt, right? Again, you're giving me, let's say, $10,000 to work on your project. So I say, okay, yeah, you can, you can, you can do that. 
um, I'll, get, I'll, I'll support your project, right? Even though maybe it's not what's best, right? Um, so, so in politics, the line uh, to cross, like, you know, if there's a line, you, you, if you cross this line, you do corruption, it's very, very close, right? Um, uh, but don't assume all the other different fields of life are free of corruption. I mean, religion, definitely there's corruption, right? Uh, but I'm saying even in, like, teaching, being a physician, all those things. Right? Uh, so it's a matter of just keeping control of your character and your actions. But that is one of the big questions. Is it okay to work with power? It's also a question if you're in a democracy. Because in these eras, there's a king. Okay? Which is usually just one person who's the whole authority. Here you have democracy where you have this big bureaucratic system. Even though you have a president who can do things, um, you have this huge, big system that you might just work for. right? And it's not the same thing. Let's say you're an engineer working for the government versus being a judge working for the government. Those are two very different things, right? Yeah. Okay, let's continue. So, uh, Ahmed Ibn Hanbal hated luxury, and he was very firm in his religious beliefs, but he was careful not to upset anyone. So, would this be similar to how Salah al-Din was? I mean, Salah al-Din, it's hard to say, because there's so many legends about him. Like, who really knows what the truth is, right? So, maybe he was. What's an interesting point in, the, in that passage is that it says that he was so firm and strict about all these things, but he was still gentle, Right? you find a lot of times someone in religion is super firm and strict and their personality is very, very abrasive. But he was very firm and strict, but he's still a very gentle person. That is much more like the prophet, peace be upon him. Right? So how do you uh, keep your own standards very high and strict but not uh, hurt anyone or end up lowering your standards by... Excusing unacceptable behavior. So the standard is far than haram, right? That's that's the ultimate standard. Okay, uh, as someone who is getting better and stronger in deen, you might move. You got all the haram covered. You got all the fard covered. Then you might move to the sunnas and and the the makru, right? So you're basically uh, elevating your game. You're improving the quality of what you're doing. Okay. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're imposing it on someone else. Uh, sometimes, okay, if, if I'm the head of the household and I'm getting very strict about Dean, yeah, it's going to affect everybody else in the household. But I also have to be in the model of the Prophet be so I have to be very forgiving. Okay. So the most admired elements of his character were honesty and justice. And um, is, the book says he stood up for majoritarian Islam, so is that Sunni Islam? Um, I don't really know. Um, yeah, I don't know what that means. Okay, let's continue. Yeah. He was completely indifferent to royals, so he seemed like he didn't care at all about the political structure of his time. Um, so, I mean, obviously Ahmed Ibn Hamad is a great example and um, role model, but... How do you, and we kind of talked about it a bit before, but if he was completely indifferent to the political structure of his time, how do you avoid people doing that now and saying really extreme things like we don't even need to vote, things like that? So it's kind of like, <clears throat> um, you know, someone saying, okay, that's not my issue that I'm going to work on. So if, if I were to ask you, okay, just in this area of Chicago, list for me all the causes that we need to work on, homelessness, cleaning the streets, you know, getting everybody fed properly. Um, 
there's, let's say you have, you know, a list of 35 issues. And then you decide, I'm going to work on this one, but not those other 25, or not those other 34, right? Because you only have so much time. And so, so there will be one person who's concerned about making sure everybody votes. There's going to be another person who's going to be concerned to make sure everybody knows how to read. There's going to be another person who's going to be concerned to make sure everybody has food, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like you pick your, your, your niche that you work on. So he wrote about theological problems using proof texts from the Quran and Sunnah. So does that mean he addressed um, like fiqh that was contemporary for his time? Yeah. So would that be like addressing, um, what's it called? Ad like you know how there's certain issues now that everybody kind of fights over in terms of like the fiqh of it. Uh -huh. So was he was he addressing stuff like that at his time? Seems like it, yeah. So what would it what would have been so controversial at his time? Uh, I think um, the point that this author is making is the author is implying that other people would focus on using reason as opposed to using ayahs and hadith to make their point, right? That's probably what he's saying. Or basically the point he's making is that he's written a whole bunch of books on this, right? And so, well, 13 books are mentioned in, in this big famous index. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the most important of Allah's works was the Musnad? Yeah. And the goal of the Musnad was to collect all the hadith of the Prophet that would prove genuine if put to the test. So, oh, and conserve an argument. So he was trying to collect hadith that were all... Um, Genuine. Genuine, and then also could be used in theological debate. Mm -hmm. So satisfi satisfying both conditions. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of tests would it would you need, like tests of the isnad and things like that? Yeah, so we'll be getting to that part, but basically to see if something's genuine, you're going to look at the chain of transmission, right? And then if you're going to look at, you know, is it useful for theology, it'll basically be what is the text saying, right? So, if he wanted to compile hadiths that would uh, could, that could be used in arguments, how is it a musnad? Which because that's supposed to be related to only one subject. Okay, no, no, musnad is not one subject. Musnad is when all the hadith are are categorized by who is the companion. So musnad is isnad, right? So the first chapter of the musnad of Ahmad ibn Hanbal is the hadith of Abu Bakr. So all the hadith I can trace back to him. The second chapter is going to be Omar, Uthman, Ali, Aisha. And so that's Musnad. Right? It's it's, uh, the, the big question with all these books is how are things categorized? So sometimes, sometimes things are categorized by topic. Uh, sometimes they're categorized by the chain. Yeah. Sometimes they're even categorized by what land is the hadith coming from? Is it coming from coming through Iraq? Is it coming through Medina? Were hadith that came through Medina more, like, trusted more? It was just a different method of interpretation because the ones in Iraq are also coming from Sahabas. Mm -hmm. So he never claimed that all the hadiths in the Musnad were genuine, and he's reported to have claimed that hadiths not in the Musnad have no, um, like <coughs> they're not uh, genuine or they have no force. I, I don't know if I, like, quoted that from the mm -hmm. book. I mean, the key point here is that it's a gigantic collection of hadith. And it's more like he's compiling all the hadith. Uh, 
that are reasonably authentic. Okay. But anytime you're working on a serious project, you're always going to go back and change something. Change this word, change that entry, and such. And that seems like what he's been doing all the way down to his deathbed. Right? Especially because it's such a big responsibility that other people are going to be using your work. And so you want to make sure you don't, you don't cause a big mess. So, to compile hadith of the Musnad, he studied 30,000 hadith narrated by 904 companions? Uh, he, he, uh, um, 30,000 out of, um, he, so he studied 750,000 hadith. Oh, okay. Yeah. And out of the 750,000 hadith, he picked 30,000. So think about that. He went through 750,000, and he decided that 720,000 are, are not up to the standard that he wants in terms of authenticity. Yeah. Um, so he, the hadith related to many subjects, including yeah. Marazi. Yeah, he, <clears throat> he used to read parts of his notes to his students for over 13 years. And he wanted, so he actually didn't put it all together because he passed away before he could do so. So his son, Abdullah, completed the task. So um, I guess his notes were in order or something like that. Yeah, I mean, the way scholars work back then, even now, you know, you're going you're gonna to be, um, you're going to have all these notes that even when you're lecturing, that's where you're going to use. And you don't want someone else to take your notes because they're not going to understand your notes. But his son apparently understood his notes. So I'm assuming he read Kitab with both his sons, maybe? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he wasn't, so Ibn Hanbal was not strict with materials and authorities. Um, and a lot of the, or many of the hadith in his musnad were uh, found to be mawdur or yeah. forged. Yeah. So that means a lot of it was completely uh-huh. forged. Uh-huh. Now keep in mind, when we're saying forged, it means that the chain can be disproven. Okay? It doesn't mean that the Prophet, peace be upon him, didn't say it. It's basically saying, um, if he said it, it didn't come through this chain. See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even like you'll we'll see terms in the Hadith literature like, you know, such and such person is categorized as a liar. It doesn't mean that they're lying in terms of the normal sense. It means that they have shared information that is considered to be not reliable. Yeah. Oh, okay. So some virtues of his work. So um, if he included a hadith from more than one narrator, he would point out small differences between the narrations. And then um, his son Abdullah added his own notes to his father's work, uh, which he had taken during lectures by other hadith. So, so in a way there's commentary by other mm-hmm. hadith uh, scholars at the time, mm-hmm. and then uh, so Abdullah also he point, his son pointed out different changes that were made by his father. So like if Ibn Hanbal had removed a hadith for any reason, his son noted that. So then people were aware of which hadiths had been taken out before the final compilation was made, and uh, his son also found some mistakes and corrected them, but he noted the original in his own notes. Or he would just at least point out that there was a mistake originally. Mm-hmm. So in terms of mistake, does that mean if a hadith was found to be Maldor? Not necessarily that far, but let's say um, something as small as um, one preposition. Right. Like, is it fi or is it min? Or is it b? 
And so the key point is that they want to make sure the manuscript is as perfect as possible. And he also expressed doubt whenever he, or he also noted whenever he had doubt regarding a text. And sometimes he added explanatory notes and other hadith. So if he's adding outside hadith, isn't that contradicting what his father said about how a hadith not in the Moistnet has no force or no weight? Um, it could be uh, not so much outside. It could be a hadith <coughs> that uh, uh, Ahmed ibn Hanbal decided is not up to his standard, but Abdullah decided, yeah, it is up to that standard. Right. Yeah, this is always going to be the case. So the, the famous case is Imam Bukhari has, has 7,000 hadith, 7,000 some hadith in his collection. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, going through his methodology, these are the ones that are, that are correct. Then you have others, other scholars that come late, later on, like Al-Hakim or Darqutni, who say, using your standard or using compared standard, uh, these other hadith should be there too. And these hadith that you have, they don't really fit that. So. Oh, so we don't believe that only the 30,000 that Ibn Hanbal picked are, you know, like worthy of studying the yeah. others. There can be others that have yeah. weight. Okay. Absolutely. And so he made sure his editions weren't mistaken for his father's work, so people reading the Mossad knew what he wrote and what his father wrote. And he tried to maintain the integrity of his father's work to the greatest degree possible. And, um, he, okay, so he reproduced the words in the original manuscript and separated letters. So what does that mean? Yeah. It says in Muqattaat, and he added a note saying the text was the original, but his father pronounced it as one word. Is it saying, like, if there's specific words, he broke up the letters for clarity yeah, or something? Mm -hmm. It's kind of confusing. Yeah, that part I don't know. Yeah. So many scholars used the Musnad for sources or commented on it in their work. It was an important, write, uh, important source for writers in different genres of Arabic literature. So, how could different writer, or how could writers use a Musnad for literature? Mm -hmm. Because I mean, so many of the hadith are literary, you know, or you know, they have all kinds of qualities that can be used for literature. Why don't we ever like study that or study the hadith from that angle? I mean, because we don't really ever study the Hadith anyway. You know. mm. um, so later scholars came and edited the Musnad and based their own books on it, including grammar books, and they wrote synopses of it and commentaries. So in what ways would they edit it? I mean, this would be a whole bunch of different things. So <clears throat> one case would be that someone has gone through and has made some corrections. Right, just like an editor. Another uh, way would be that someone has uh, studied uh, other hadith that should also be in the collection. Right? Or someone is looking at the collection and decides, you know, these specific hadith should not be there. And a lot of people uh, provide commentary, you know, on each of the hadith or on groups of hadith and such. Is the original with only um, Ibn Hanbal and his sons writing available? Uh, that, uh, I don't know. Um, so because of the pious personality of Ibn Hanbal, his work acquired an R of sanctity, and devout traditionists read it in front of the Prophet's grave, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. 
Wouldn't it be better to read Quran though or something? Okay, but that doesn't mean they didn't read Quran. Yeah, but I, I mean, if you have to choose, I mean, it just sounds like, I don't know, it's kind of surprising to read it. Okay, so, so we're sitting here, uh, rather than studying this book that's about Hadith, wouldn't it be better just to read Hadith? And wouldn't it be better than that to read Quran? True. Yeah, I see. Anything. Okay. So, um, I mean, it's not like it's better. It's just you have to study it from different. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's fair to assume that they probably did all that too. Okay. So, over time, his work grew less popular because it was so bulky and there were better planned and more practical works on hadith produced during the 3rd and 4th centuries. What can be more practical than a book that was compiled to address, of, with hadith to, to be used for theological debate? Okay, the hadith books that are for theological debate are different than his musnad. So the musnad is just a collection of all the hadith ordered by isnad. And then the books of theological or law are would-be different books that he wrote. That's actually kind of all I have for you. Okay. Okay, very good. So that brings us to uh, page 51, inshallah. Right. Okay. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashhadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.